With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I'm actually recording this early on Monday because uh, I am leaving for Denver for a Dispatch Meetup thing. I'm a Bob um, uh, tomorrow, and so we're scrambling the the recording set schedule, as Charles Charles Cook Charles Cook might say, um, and um, um, and we're hoarding uh, aluminium, as Charles Cook might say. Um, and uh, so I'm grateful to my friend and frequent remnant guest, uh, Tevi Troy, for agreeing to come in on short notice and engage in all manner of meandering rank punditry and whatnot. Uh, Tevi, thanks for coming back to the remnant. Thanks. I now have something I can put on my tombstone, frequent remnant guest. There you go. There you go. And we should say, all right, so like before I do anything, how do I identify you these days? Because you're like a movable feast of different things going on. I think that's it. Movable feast, Tevi Troy. <laughs> but you can say presidential historian and old friend of Jonah Gold. Okay, that works. All right. And um, so uh, listeners might have suspected this um, from the significant silences, as the Straussians might say. Um, but I actually don't have a lot of people on who are, if they're pushing a book, that's great. Pushing an article that's great but i usually don't have people on who are pushing other things um because that way lies madness um and you would not be, people would not believe the torrent of garbage i get from press people uh from pr people every single day i'm not alone in this i think i'm on a list of pod, you know top 200 podcasts on on apple or something and so people just plug and play stuff i'm on a list as an la times columnist i'm on a list for these things and those things and people send me things without clearly any sign that they have any conception of the kind of podcast I do and the kind of conservative I am. And so for like just this morning, it just, it's like the, the just, it's just top of mind because it just came in this morning. I got a email from the Kibok gift agency. I don't know what that is. Some PR agency uh, headline is, Climate Clock adds gender parity lifeline for International Women's Day. And I mean, I could read the whole thing, but like the point is, is like the idea that somehow this is something I would do anything with other than mock it um, is kind of weird. But this is all preamble uh, on a hazy Monday morning um, to make an exception to the rule. Um, and I want to talk very briefly about, Tevi, you've got this sort of side gig thing going on. Maybe it's a main gig. I don't know, because you do a lot of different things. Um, uh, it's, was it Lessons of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue or 1600 
10 Avent lessons? How, tell me what, what is this thing you were doing so I can both promote it and mock it at the same time? This is great. I'm really appreciating this opportunity to crash the ruminant. <laughs> the thing is called 1600 Lessons. And for the record, I did not pitch you to go on or to talk about it. And uh, you requested that I join and I'm happy to be here. But I did create a new leadership training course based on my knowledge of the presidency and my work in the White House that explores how you can be a better leader by looking at the models of various presidents and sometimes as a positive example and unfortunately sometimes as a negative example. Let's say I'm the head of a Fortune 50 company and I've invited you to my retreat to uh, talk about to talk to my my leadership team. What would be an example of the on a positive or negative leadership lessons from the White House that would apply to, you know, the Ramjack Corporation? Yeah, I think every corporation can benefit from lessons of the presidents and what they, they provided. I have five different modules, one's on the characteristics of leadership. One is on infighting and how to avoid it and build a cohesive team. Another is about crisis and how best to deal with it. Another is about preparation and how the way you prepare will shape how your team prepares and thereby affect your performance. And then another is about the phases of leadership, how you are supposed to get ready for the big job and how you're supposed to act when you have it. And then finally, how you should be thinking about a legacy and training a successor. So all of these are replete with examples from presidential history of how presidents have done these kinds of things well, and sometimes, unfortunately, not so well. So what would be a leadership lesson from my man, Dwight D. Eisenhower? And I'm, leader says, as you know, I'm just totally catching you up, blindsiding you with this stuff. This stuff so, um, yeah, so in, in my lessons, I, I do talk about Dwight Eisenhower and his skills in the communications front. Sometimes people may be a little surprised at that because people thought he wasn't great at it, but he actually put a lot of thought into speeches, he actually gave a disastrous early campaign speech where people said, you're not doing this right. And so he got an actor, Robert Montgomery, to help him learn how to present on television. He worked on the lighting to make sure that he, the, the bald egg head of his wouldn't shine to the, same, to the same degree that it did in early presentations. And he made himself a better communicator. And to the extent that some people say that he was vague or not sharp in those things, sometimes it was a studied vagueness because he didn't want to appear too sharp and too, and too, people's, too much in people's faces. And he also, he was the first president to have his press conferences televised. They weren't televised live and unedited as Kennedy's would be, but he was the first one to pr present that material on, on TV. That's a good segue into, um, into uh, the first installment of the punditry phase insofar as um, I think the first piece I wrote about Biden after he got, after his inauguration was, he should be like Eisenhower, right? He, less is more when it comes to Biden. And one of the things Eisenhower was great at was, you know, there would be some raging controversy going on and he would go out and talk like grandpa and basically sound reassuring without actually saying very much and then let go people go fight, right? I mean, like, yeah, historically, you can make an argument that he kind of should have intervened with the McCarthy stuff sooner. Um, but as, in general, he basically, you know, people forget that Eisenhower was, um, you know, the Democrats tried to get him to run as a Democrat, too. I mean, he was just so immensely popular that um, he could afford to sort of stay out of a lot of partisan stuff. And. Biden running on a return to normalcy again, which wasn't an Eisenhower thing, but, um, uh, and 
wanting to calm things down and talking about unity, I've always thought that he should have been, you know, America's grandpa. And then every now and then when the grandkids are causing a ruckus and you hear some noise, whatever, he comes out and says, you know, don't make me come in there, you know, and then goes back and watches back, watches TV or whatever. And I think one of the problems for Biden is that he's had a chip on his shoulder about how he should be president for a very long time. And he can't see himself in the most politically beneficial terms for his own um, sake. And he can't, and therefore he can't live up to the rhetoric that he's providing of this sort of unity stuff. He really wants to be a more partisan president. Make any sense to you? Yeah, I got to make two points here. First about Eisenhower, he actually worked very thoughtfully and behind the scenes to discredit McCarthy and make him look bad. And he worked closely with Lyndon Johnson, who's the Democratic majority leader in the Senate, to make McCarthy look as bad as possible. And it's this very contrast you're talking about, Jonah, with the less is more and the more is more. Both McCarthy and Johnson recognized that McCarthy would not wear well on television. And so they tried to have these hearings set up in such a way that, I'm sorry, Johnson and Eisenhower recognized that McCarthy would not wear well on television. And they set up the hearings in such a way so that there'd be lots of McCarthy and he would have opportunities to clown himself, which he did. So I think Eisenhower was uh, a, a hidden hero in the way he helped to discredit McCarthy. As for Biden, you know, we were joking around a little bit before uh, about how I read all these memoirs of every administration, not just the Trump administration, and how uh, you wisely don't, but you know, I, I do it for ammunition and material in my presidential history learning. And all of the memoirs, regardless of who is saying it, regardless of which perspective, they all say that Trump was urged in debate prep to let Biden hang himself by talking because the more Biden said, the worse he would look. And Trump in that horrific first debate, which may be the worst performance by a presidential candidate, certainly by a presidential incumbent in history, he just couldn't let Biden do the talking. And if he let Biden do the talking, he might've done better in that debate, but he was unable to do it. That's a, I mean, to take both points, First of all, on the Eisenhower thing, um, I think it was first in Paul Johnson's book, you know, or I think it was in Modern Times, I can't remember, where um, I first read about how, you know, Truman thought Eisenhower was going to be a flop because he's like, he's going to get in there, he's this general, he's going to bark around orders and no one's going to do what he wants to do. And it turns out that, like, Truman was wrong, that Eisenhower, who was, you know, it was obviously he, he was the supreme allied commander and all that kind of stuff and he had seen combat and all that kind of thing. But he was the kind of general who's actually a master at working the bureaucracy of the military. And um, uh, and it turns out that he was, what's the phrase, like, you know, the duck that on the surface is all calm and underneath is working furiously. He was really good at working the, the inside part of his presidency while seeming like he was just a golfer. Um, which I think would have been a much better look for Joe Biden um, than what we got. Yeah, they called it the hidden hand of presidency. Right, right. And um, um, yeah, so like, so the question though is, I'm a big believer in less is more. You wouldn't know it from my and like dominance of the talking on this podcast so far. But uh, are those days over, right? Because I understand your point about the debate and I think it was right about the debate, but more broadly, Trump kind of broke that old rule because it used to be there was this concern about overexposing your candidate and Trump blew that up entirely by by basically 
I don't think it was a strategy. I think it was his narcissism, but he always wanted to be on camera. He always wanted to be the center of attention. He couldn't let the COVID press conferences go um, as like professional, serious enterprises. He had to make it into a Trump show every day. Um, and it worked for him until he didn't get reelected, but it's certainly that sort of overexposure dominance um, worked for him as a means of taking over the Republican Party, worked for him as a means of getting elected in the first place, all that free media. Um, and you now have this whole generation of Matt Gates type people who think that just being on TV is what the job is about. So are we, is, is the era of less is more over, or do you think it's going to make a comeback? You know, in the Politico article by Daniel Lipman about Vivek Ramaswamy and his run for president, they ask him, well, you're 37 years old. Why don't you run for Senate first? And <laughs> Vivek says, I know a lot of senators. All they want to do is be on cable TV. I'm already on cable TV, <laughs> which I thought was a very funny line. And it's true. There is this sense from the Matt Gates of the world that all they want to do is be on television. But I don't think Matt Gates is ever going to be president. I don't think is, is weak. He will never be president. <laughs> Let's be a little more assertive about that. And so it's not necessarily the right strategy. Uh, Trump did do a lot of overexposure. I guess it helped in the, in the 2016, but it certainly didn't help him in 2020. It certainly didn't help him with the COVID uh, press conferences that, that you were referencing. So these things, maybe they work for a while, maybe they don't. Uh, you and I have recently talked about Ed Koch, who in the era before cable and before Twitter and before the internet, he managed to be ubiquitous in New York in the early 80s by just showing up everywhere. And it worked for him for three terms. And then on the, you know, his attempt to run for fourth term didn't work. So I, I think overexposure has its dangers. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought you, where I thought you might go with this is that DeSantis, I think part, partly out of a um, recognition by him and his team that he has a bit of a charm deficit, um, seems to be producing, following a less is more approach. He's not getting bogged down in sort of stupid name calling things with Trump. Uh, they are husbanding his uh, time and exposure um, pretty zealously. There was just this piece in the post this morning about, you know, when CPAC was going on, uh, he was out at the, um, what was it? The Reagan library. And, um, uh, they didn't have a press avail. They didn't invite him to the cocktail party. He didn't work the room. He just did handshakes and moved on. Um, and you can't really say, you know, whether it's of necessity or if it's just simply strategy, um, you can't say that the less is more for DeSantis hasn't been working for him. Yeah, I, I think both can be true. I think a smart leader takes advantage of their own assets and recognizes their liabilities. So if there is a charm deficit here, which I read about a lot, but I can't confirm independently that it exists. But if, if said charm deficit exists, then staying away a little bit, not going to the cocktail parties is the right move. At the same time, not getting in a team contest with Trump about who can come up with the better nicknames is always a good strategy, so especially if you want to win not only the GOP nomination, but more importantly, the actual election from 2024. So I, I, let me just ask you this, like, um, um, you know, we basically grew up together intellectually, politically for a big chunk of time. And for listeners who don't know, we've talked about this before. I was Tevi's intern. Um, I used to make the point that it was, it was a paid internship, not like those just vassal serfs or the other interns around because um, I had graduated from college and basically I was, I was on the job training to replace Tevi who went off to go get his PhD in um, 
at the University of Texas in American Studies, and um, uh, which is not the gut thing that it sounds like. That was Tom Wolf got his PhD in American Studies, right at UT. Um, and uh, uh, but um, you know, we used to argue about Irving Kristol and Leo Strauss and all these kinds of things, and we took politics very, very seriously, and we had all sorts of you know. Uh, you know, passionate young man arguments about this, that, or the other thing about politics. And we grew up, you know, sort of in the shadow of the Reagan presidency, which took itself very seriously. And all those Reagan alum took themselves very seriously in think tanks and whatnot. And, you know, end of last week, there was, there were stories, I think it was in Axios, but also maybe elsewhere about how Trump's team is still uh, murderboarding better juvenile nicknames for Ron DeSantis, right? Because, uh, you know, there was meatball Ron, but like Trump is sticking with Ron DeSanctimonious. And, um, but some people are like, they want fat Ron or this, that, or the other thing. And, um, does that cause you any reason? I mean, like you're a presidential historian, you take the presidency kind of seriously. The, am I being overly fastidious? Is this a product of the sort of post-World War II era nostalgia and that things were much more sort of uh, freewheeling in the Andrew Jackson era or something. But like the juvenilia of having teams not only debating what juvenile nickname, what schoolyard uh, nickname to use against the governor of Florida, but also deliberately leaking it because they're kind of proud of these debates. Um, that's just, it just, it's just sad to me. Yeah, pathetic more. But so there's a couple of things going on here as well. First of all, as you well know, there is a long history of storied presidential nicknames and uh, amusing nicknames that have come out of White House disputes. And I even wrote a piece in the dispatch last week about the nicknames of Watergate and even the words like the plumber and Woodstein for Woodward and Bernstein. And these are all effectively nicknames. But there is a difference between staffers organically coming up with nicknames to relieve tension and, and maybe get, get a laugh and sometimes diminish your enemies and a president or a presidential candidate workshopping these things. So there, there's obviously a real difference. And it also, it has a downstream effect. So in that same post article that you referenced, they talked about how DeSantis opponents are holding up signs saying Ronda fascist, which is also, I think, juvenile. And so I don't think it is helpful to have a presidential candidate workshop, focus group, pay outside contributors for, for nicknames. But I also recognize that we can laugh at a good old nickname. I'll tell you one of my, my favorite ones is in the Reagan administration, Edwin Meese was famously disorganized. He was, he was a great guy and a good conservative, but he was a little disorganized. And he had this briefcase where they would take papers and the papers that he would read would go in the briefcase never to be seen again. And the joke was this thing was called the Meese case, because this is where things papers and ideas would go to die. So yeah, there are, there are good and cute nicknames and I'm all for it. And I like to have a good laugh at it. And I even wrote a political piece about the history of political nicknames, but I do think it is juvenile and sad to see it at a much higher level among people who should be frankly displaying more dignity. Yeah. But I, mean, I, I guess my question is, um, more on the despair side in terms of the fact that you and I can tisk tisk about it. Um, and, but it doesn't seem to have much of a political price. 
right? Like it, it, let's put it this way. If it had leaked 20 years ago that, you know, a presidential, first of all, a former president, right? But never mind a former president, but just like a serious presidential contender was putting a lot of time and energy trying to come up with, um, you know, better, you're a poopy head kind of insults. It would be an embarrassment and, and, uh, you know, not a scandal, but a, um, uh, you know, something that they would get mocked for and the mockery would pay, would exact a price. It just doesn't seem like behaving like a child, um, in politics as necessary. I mean, maybe Trump's just the exception, but it just, it doesn't seem like it, 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 you pay a price for it. Certainly Margie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, those guys don't pay a price for it. And is there some underlying structural explanation for it? Is it that the nature of people who comprise these coalitions have different expectations of politics? Is it just a loss of faith and trust in institutions? I mean, is it just the second law of thermodynamics and everything <laughs> decays and rots and we're all doomed to get things for things to get worse until the heat death of the sun? Well, first, let me give a great example of this <laughs> phenomenon. So you go back to 2000. Remember that debate with Al Gore and George W. Bush, where mm -hmm. Al Gore is rolling his eyes and pantomiming and kind of being pretty immature. And so sighing was the key. Yeah, right? sighed. And, and Saturday Night Live not only mocks him for this, which is shocking because Saturday Night Live stopped mocking Democrats recently, but they, they, the video of Saturday Night Live mocking him is shown to Al Gore so that Al Gore won't act like that in the future. Now, let's fast forward 12 years to the famous debate where Joe Biden beats up on Paul Ryan. He does the same stuff with the pantomiming and the interrupting. And I was thinking after watching that debate, wow, Saturday Night Live is going to mock him. This is going to redound poorly on Joe Biden. But it didn't. People said, yeah, Joe, you really gave it to him. So there is something changing in American politics beyond just Trump, where we are seeing it now more as blood sport. And I've recently cited the statistic that less than 50% of Americans have a religious affiliation these days. And I think people are seeing politics more as their religion. And so you're kind of rooting for your great leaders to defeat the enemies and embarrass the enemies, humiliate the enemies. You know, your old famous uh, Conan quote that you always like to say. And I think that is infecting American politics at multiple levels and on all sides of the aisle. And, and it is distressing. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could 
look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This may be unfair to blindside you like this, but you just reminded me of this, and I, I think it'd be a good Tevi Troy piece. So if you want to write it, you can write it for us. But um, uh, you know, I bring it up on here a lot. I know you listen to this podcast about trying to figure out were they always crazy or did they become crazy about people like Rudy Giuliani or General Flynn or whatever, uh, Sidney Powell, that kind of thing. But when you were talking about uh, uh, Gore and the sighing and they played the video to him to get him to stop kind of thing, that was back in the days when um, Naomi Wolf was a consultant to Gore, and she was the one who famously said he needs to wear more earth tones because um, that'll make him more accessible to women and more approachable and that kind of stuff. And as much as I spend time on this podcast talking about how Rudy and Flynn and these kinds of people have lost their freaking minds, uh, Naomi Wolf is as bat guano crazy as any of them, right? She is way out there. And so I'm trying to think, you know, there were some people after 9-11, some Reagan alumni who ended up being like 9-11 truther types. Um, and, you know, like, I don't know, Ramsey Clark was kind of a, <laughs> went kind of nuts after the Johnson administration. So like, do you have any rough sense of, first of all, what is your explanation for these? Is there a monocausal explanation for this? Or is it the, that do you think the rule is that they were always crazy, but they were con constrained by institutions? Um, and norms, or do you think they became crazy? And secondly, um, can you think of other examples of veterans of presidential administrations who were taken seriously and then once they got out of the White House started to drift towards nuttery? I mean, Pierre Salinger, I'm just trying to think of some other ones. Um, anyway, have, have at it where you will. I have a, a doctorate, but I am not a, um, a psychiatrist, so I'm not going to diagnose people. But it, it does seem that there are Often people who are you seemingly normal that you work with in the administration. And I, I did have some of these experiences in the Bush administration who then go off the deep end, do things that are completely crazy, do things that you wouldn't expect. And as you know, there generally tends to be a lot of vetting for people before they get these top level political jobs. They're asked about their previous behaviors. Uh, you ask people around them, they have FBI checks. So it, it shouldn't happen, but it does. And I think that there's just some set of people who, whatever challenges life throws them, changes their direction. Now, I, I know a person, you, you know him too, I'm not going to say his name, but who knew Rudy Giuliani back when he was 
fairly successful mayor of New York, who said that Giuliani is always more tethered and more sane when he has a stable relationship, whether it's wife or girlfriend, and that when he doesn't, he tends, he's even back then, tended to act a little more unmoored. So again, I don't want to psychoanalyze people, but you're going to have people who just do things that you you don't expect and anticipate. And I think the idea is to feel bad for them and perhaps um, you know, not follow them, but certainly it should not be to celebrate them. I feel like, well, so first of all, I feel like it was a little bit of a dodge. I'm allowed to say that to you. <laughs> but um, no, because like I, I, I think the reality is, is probably there's not a single explanation for all these cases. Individual humans are individual humans and they have different responses to different things. And um, and some of it is the changing nature of institutions and some of it is the changing nature of individuals life trajectory. But uh, I'm trying to think, though, like. You know, the thing I always try to do, particularly in this era where we have so many young conservatives who think that they have just discovered some new insight or argument, which is actually really old, like was old when you and I were having arguments about this stuff. Um, you know, and the one the example I always use is all these people who think that like post-liberal integralism is this like new idea when like this was what Brent Bozell and Buckley were and Meyer were debating in the sixties and seventies. Um, and industrial policy is not a new idea it is like one of the oldest economic ideas in human history. Um, but so what I always try to do is ask myself when it seems like there's some new phenomenon going on is saying, well, is it actually a new phenomenon or am I just noticing it or is it bothering me now in a way that it didn't bother me before? And it seems to me that there have been a lot of people who have left administrations. I'm just struggling to come up with some of the names who went on. I mean, like, uh, let's put it, uh, what's his name? Um, Henry Wallace, right? The v former vice president of the United States. Um, Truman, uh, FDR kicks him off, replaces him with Truman. And Wallace goes on to be, I mean, it's probably unfair to say he was a communist agent, but he was sort of a de facto communist asset. Um, and surrounded by communists and went really loopy with the People's Party and ran the New Republic in its communist phase. Um, and so I'm just wondering, is there is, is the, the history of people making it all the way, not necessarily to the presidency, but to the the, panthe the, the close orbit of the presidency actually ending up always having been more radical than we thought or going more radical than we thought? Forget crazy, just more radical. So I, I was first thinking crazy because... Uh... You know, Aaron Burr is vice president and he shoots uh, Alexander Hamilton. And then he has that crazy period where he seems to want to break away from the United States and create his own country. So his own kingdom. I think he wanted to be a king somewhere in like the Southwest or something. Right. It was something truly bonkers. Yeah. 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 It, 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 was, it was truly a crazy thing. So you have this phenomenon of some people who go crazy later in life. You also have this thing of people who. At the time, you say, yeah, I'm rooting for them because they represent my values, but they're actually much more radical than you think. I think Henry Wallace would fall in that category. So, again, I would say the fact that we can name these people and, and struggle to come up with a list of 15, I guess, seems to suggest to me that these people are not the norm. And that's not what you expect coming out of an administration. Maybe there are a couple more out of the, the Trump administration, you mentioned Giuliani and, and Flynn, but let, let's take someone like Peter Navarro. I don't think he's crazy. 
I think he's had these views about China and trade for a long time. And I think that according to the memoirs, Jared Kushner picked him up because he liked what Navarro was saying about China and trade. And they brought him into the administration to represent those views. So I don't think he's crazy. I don't agree with him, but I think they're, they're, he's just a different kettle of fish. Yeah, but then Navarro goes on to um, have this, you know, these weird moments where he says the quiet part out loud about like the scheme to, um, you know, uh, I would argue steal the election, um, with these electoral college schemes and, and whatnot. And these claims about the stolen, uh, that the election was rigged and all that kind of stuff. And I'll grant you, I don't think he's necessarily crazy the way what's his face, Linwood, the, the Georgia guy, um, or Sidney Powell, but, uh, there is something about people who get a taste of power that may not make them psychologically crazy, but gives them an incentive structure to do crazy things that if you had told them, say, five years earlier, okay, here's what's going to happen to you. Here's my crystal ball. You're going to get in the administration and you're going to get caught up in this desire to hold on and you're going to get into this thing where they, uh, on January 6th, you're going to try and do all of this stuff um, to, in effect, steal the election. They would say, how dare you, sir? I would never be party to anything like that. And yet it actually happens, right? I mean, there's something about the, uh, the desire to stay relevant and stay in power that can really warp people. Yeah, so look, I, I think there's an important distinction here. And I w- in no way was defending Peter Navarro. I'm just saying what they asked for was what they got, right? Peter Navarro was Peter Navarro before and after. That's what he was. Rudy Giuliani, the crystal ball, would have led him to say, how dare you, sir, right? In 2007, when people were saying he was going to be the Republican nominee and he was America's mayor. And, and then a scant 15 years later, he's got the, the, you know, the die streaking down his face and people are keeping him out of, and I, I kid you not, and this is in multiple memoirs, they're keep, keeping him out of presidential debate sessions because of his excessive flatulence. So, I mean, he's a guy who's really gone down far and perhaps the biggest drop in reputation in American political history with the possible, possible exception of Charles Lindbergh. So Lindbergh, let me ask you this question. <laughs> um, how fairly or unfairly do you think Lindbergh was treated by history? I don't really think he was treated unfairly by history. I think he kind of made a bet and he stuck with the bet too long. And he, he was an isolationist and he was sympathetic to the Nazis. And, uh, you know, obviously he's also someone who had very difficult personal circumstances. With the, yeah. Yeah. Kidnapping the murder of the baby. Um, I grew up, you know, when I was working on liberal fascism, there were a whole bunch of things that I grew up believing because it's what everyone told me were the truth. Like that, that Father Coughlin was right wing, um, and he really wasn't particularly right wing, at least not on things like this small area of public concern called public policy. Um, and you know, he attacked FDR from the left, blah 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 blah. Uh, but he was a raging anti semite. I was also told that that Lindbergh was a raging anti semite, and yet um, he was absolutely wrong in his foreign policy positions. Don't get me wrong. But if you read like the Scott Berg bio, um, which I did, um, there's actually very little evidence other than one, that one really terribly worded speech that he actually had personal animus towards Jews. Um, it, I think the, the, the better way of thinking about it is he just didn't particularly care about Jews. And he thought that relations with Germany were more important. For, he was a philo, Teuton, right? He loved the Germans um, and he just didn't really particularly care one way or another about Jews, but he wasn't the kind of anti-Semite that Coughlin was. Um, 
And I think it's a very subtle distinction, but it's worth making in an academic sense between the sort of isolationists who were who fell into an objectively anti-Semitic position and the anti-Semites who became isolationists because of their anti-Semitism. I mean, it's a, it, there's, a, there's a difference there. There are some people who, became, who become Nazis just because they hate Jews, right? Including Hitler. Hitler was anti-Semitic long before he was a Nazi. Um, it's what drove him to Nazism. Uh, there are some people who took positions like in the original America First Committee stuff that led them to an immoral lack of uh, moral clarity and, and concern for the plight of European Jewry. But they didn't get into that position. Like Charles Beard did not become an isolationist because he hated Jews or because he wanted the Nazis to kill all the Jews. There are other people who kind of did. And I always thought, I, I think that Lindbergh was put more into the driven by anti-Semitism camp than, than he deserved to be. But I'm not devoting much of more, more of my podcast to defending Lindbergh. Uh, let, let, let me just say on that point, I'm not someone who defends anti-Semitism, but when I was listing Lindbergh's sins, I'm not thinking of anti-Semitism as, as primary among them. So he, he had other problems and other challenges. Fair enough. Okay. All right. So uh, uh, getting back to the state of the GOP and the state of the right. Um, I've got a good CPAC story for you. All right. Hit me. A couple of years ago. So I, I've been to a number of CPACs over the years. I've not gone recently, but th there was one where I went to maybe four or five years ago. It was around your 50th birthday. And I took my son. And then after I left and I saw you at your birthday event, and I mentioned to you that I'd come from CPAC and you looked a little stricken. <laughs> and, uh, you know, look, CPAC has definitely changed over the years. I was uh, good friends. I, I'm good friends with Dan Schneider, who was a senior person there who is no longer there. And I think there have been some efforts to kind of keep it from being as clown showy as it has become. And uh, now I would certainly not take my son to, to CPAC. So it's, uh, it, it's changed over the years. And uh, I think it's unfortunate. It used to be a great place to meet a lot of people you know within the conservative movement. It was a good place for networking. And there were some speeches you would say, wow, that's crazy. But there are others where you'd say, hey, this person's important within the movement. I want to hear what they have to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, when Kellyanne Conway said in 2017 that CPAC is now TPAC um, or Trump PAC, uh, that was an exaggeration then. Um, it feels pretty spot on now, right? Um, uh, my colleague, um, Declan Garvey, was telling me, I, I missed this. Um, I watched Trump's speech, but I tuned in a little late. Um, the official loudspeaker, you know, uh, voice of God auditorium, CPAC voice introducing Trump, you know, said, ladies and gentlemen, the next president of the United States. Um, you know, so CPAC has basically become a part of this um, sort of Trump Inc. You know, it's an appendage of, of Trump Inc. at this point. And so it makes me wonder, how, you know, how much does it actually matter now? Um, you know, who cares? You know, someone, someone on Twitter said about Trump winning the straw poll there. Um, majority of attendees of Star Trek convention prefer Star Trek to Star Wars. Um, right. I mean, like how much does it actually matter? So like there's a perfectly legitimate debate about how much it ever actually mattered, but it used to like be a more legitimate debate. Um, it's a different kind of question now. So wh what do you think? I, I think it did matter. I think the CPAC straw poll was a good indicator 
of where the conservatives were in a particular race. That doesn't mean that person was going to win the nomination, but it helped you suss out where things stood, who was in the, the lane. I hate the lane description in the presidential nominating process, but you, you know what I'm getting at. And I think CPAC has only hurt itself by making it, you know, the, 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 the Star Trek poll for uh, people who prefer Star Trek over Star Wars. So uh, I think that is something that is no longer there. And I also think that, uh, you know, as you know, I worked for the Romney campaign in 2012 and was working pretty hard on trying to make that happen. And when Romney went to CPAC and called himself severely conservative, that was a problem for him. I mean, that, that is not a modifier that a conservative uses about themselves. And I think it was a, a telling moment. And, you know, so that was only 11 years ago and Romney was going to CPAC and thinking it was a place to go. So things have changed a lot in, in this decade and, uh, and certainly for CPAC, not for the better. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you want to really talk about how things have changed. The year before Romney won that straw poll in 2012, I was named conservative journalist of the year by CPAC. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that would happen in CPAC today. I don't think so either. And I don't think less would be for it. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I just, it's past as another country is kind of my feeling about it. Um, and I have to admit, I, you know, I was kind of, I mean, I was glad it was nice to get named and stuff. I actually couldn't go because that was when my brother died uh, to accept the award. But it was, um, you know, it was nice at the same time. I've always had the same sort of feeling that you have a little squeamish about CPAC. Um, it, I always used to say if it didn't exist, they'd have to invent it because it is just like this sort of trade show and convention for the right. And so because the right was a bigger tent than people realized there were crazy people there, you know, and you know, uh, I remember 15 years ago, something like that. Um, when there was a big debate about how the log cabin Republicans couldn't have a booth, um, but they gave the John Birch Society a booth, uh, you know, like it's, it, it, it was not a perfect institution then, but it's, it's, it's just a different one now, you know? So in Trump's speech, he says, you know, essentially he's running to be Bane, right? I am your retribution, you know, that kind of stuff. And that I am running to stop world war three and all that kind of thing. Um, and also to save your gas stoves. Um, is that meaningfully conservative to you or is it right wing? I mean, is there a distinction in your mind between being right wing and conservative or is it, is it, this is just sort of, uh, you know, Jesuitical, lexicographical and nomenclatural, um, argy bargy. So I always thought I was conservative and people want in the mainstream press to demean someone who's conservative. They call them right wing. It's just a, a negative sounding modifier. But, but I think you're onto something. And look, the conservatism that Continetti talks about in his book is not necessarily correspond with what is seen as right wing. And, and maybe we can create this distinction here that conservative is someone who wants to preserve institutions and believes in the founding. And right wing is someone who wants to drink liberal tears. And maybe there's some overlap in, the, in those two people. But I think there seems to be a distinction between what the goals are. I agree. I mean, it, you can get really... I mean, I said I was sort of heaping scorn on getting into about getting into Jesuitical, you know, terminological things, but the, and I hate those, those, I call them Ben Sass boxes, the, the four by four box things, the McKinsey kind of things. Uh, and every time I make fun of Sass about it, he gives me a hard time, but, um, you know, uh, 
the ones that libertarians love, but if you like, you know, where they try to show that libertarians on the right side of every issue kind of thing. Um, but one of the other important criteria here is, is, is populism versus not populism, right? Because, um, you can be right wing and still be for institutions. Um, you might want to give those institutions more power than is healthy, like, I don't know, the Catholic church or something like that. Right. Um, uh, you can be right wing and for the institution of family in a way that maybe I wouldn't necessarily agree with. Right. Um, but populists tend to be pretty anti-institutional. Um, and, uh, and I think the right wing populism thing is orthogonal to the sort of, um, conservative institutionalism that, that, that you and I essentially favor. Look, if you want to tear down the institutions, then you're not in the camp with Irving Kristol, George Will, Ronald Reagan. If you, if you want to tear it all down, then, then you're in a different place. Whereas if you want to preserve and improve things, then, then, then let's have a conversation. So uh, I, I think there is a little too much of teardownism in populism on the left and on the right and wherever it comes from. So uh, I'm not a teardown kind of guy. Um, let, let, let's see how we can fix things. I think we've got this great American experiment going on. Um, you know, our, our, both, our, our mutual friend Jeff Jacoby just wrote a piece about the, the whole idea of the, the national divorce and what a terrible idea that would be for not only for America and for the world. So it's just, it's just not where you and I are. I don't think it's where you and I will ever be unless you know, we have hair dyed running down our faces as we do something at the uh, Four Seasons parking lot. But uh, I, I think that's unlikely to happen based on what I know of you and what, what I think I know of me. Um, yeah, I'm not, I mean, at, at this point, I feel like I'm, I'm not really worried about me going that way because I, I had so many incentives to go that way. Um, and I, uh, if I was going to give into those temptations, I, I would have by now. I, I, I think the greater danger for me is that I follow my wife's heart's desire and open a sandwich shop somewhere in Washington state and just leave all this stuff behind. Um, well then you can be Kevin McCarthy someday. Isn't that how he got to start with a sandwich shop on the West coast? Yeah. Sort of a reverse Kevin McCarthy. That kind of works. Um, or, you know, remember when George McGovern went and opened an inn and discovered that government regulations could be a problem. With the lucky land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Right, so you wrote a piece for the examiner uh, a couple weeks ago or yeah, a couple weeks ago, um, about how writers make it work now. Um, and I thought it was interesting in part because like, while I have lots of experience overlapping with a lot of the things that you were writing about in there, it's like, I, I, I know I, I write a lot, but I don't write on spec very much. I don't do submissions very much anymore. So I'm kind of, I'm more on the, um, demand side for writers than I am on the supply side um, than I used to be. Um, so why don't you just sort of walk through what your, uh, what your observations are about how writers make it these days. And what do you think of chat GPT, which is like your, your peg for the thing? 
Yeah, so you know, ChatGPT was indeed my peg. And let me just say two things about ChatGPT before I, I go on, which is I tried the whole ChatGPT and tried to do an article on presidents and, uh, and MASH, as it were. And every fact that ChatGPT spit out at me was incorrect. So I, I obviously tried to independently verify things before I published them. And so nothing that I got from ChatGPT was accurate. So that is a caveat emptor to all of you out there. The second thing is that I actually had this line in the piece, but the editor probably wisely took it out. I said, this is not going to be a piece that has a paragraph that was written by ChatGPT and then me saying, that paragraph you just read was written by ChatGPT because three weeks in, that's already a cliche. So I, I did not do that. But what I wanted to do was say, okay, there is this thing. It can write a serviceable paragraph. But is that what a writer does? And as someone who writes a lot of pieces, I've written, as you know, hundreds of pieces in my career and um, almost all of them, on spec or in negotiation with editor, but almost uh, only a handful as columnists because I have not wanted to pursue that path, you have to build a brand. And you were actually very instrumental in my thinking on this because when I left the Bush administration in 2009, I had written very little. I'd written a book and a handful of op-eds and book reviews. But you said to me, you've got to expand the number of things, your your, your issue areas. And so don't just write about healthcare, write about other things and show expertise in other areas and, and de deploy um, your smarts in, in other ways. And, and I think that was very good advice, which, which I thank you for. But what I've done is try and build a brand as someone who's smart, thoughtful, conservative, who's trying to bring some knowledge of history to the way we look at current problems. And also not just knowledge of history, but also has experience working inside government. I, I always felt I had a PhD and I knew how to write before I went in government, but I really never knew what to say until I was done with my 13 years in government. And after that, I've never had a problem figuring out what to write. I just, I feel like I have so much more to say now because of those years toiling away in government and kind of learning how it works. And I just have a more informed way of looking at things. So the piece is really about how one builds a brand as a writer and thinker. And that's something that ChatGPT, for all its serviceable paragraph crafting, is not really something you can do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people are, well, first of all, we should just stipulate that, like, I mean, your caveat emptor point is, is well taken, but that's going to get fixed, right? I mean, they're talking about the, you know, sort of a, a hyper Moore's law of capabilities for these generative AI things over the next 10 years. and so. Um, it'll still make mistakes, but not nearly at the scale it is now. I mean, I asked it, I talked about this on a solo podcast recently where I had asked it all sorts of questions about me and it got almost all of them wrong. Um, I thought it was particularly funny, but it said that, um, in one of its versions, Jonah Goldberg, um, uh, is a conservative writer who focuses primarily on Jewish issues. Um, and I was like, don't tell, don't tell Devi and pod this. Uh, but, um, uh, um, it's more like Jonah Goldberg is a conservative writer who occasionally has pod on to explain Judaism to him. That's right. That's right. Um, that's closer to the act, closer to accurate, I should say. Um, I think people are at least in this stage in, in, in chat GPT's evolution are missing the point in part because the people who are writing about it tend to be writers, right? And so writers think about what is the threat to my 
occupation, right? I mean, if you were a truck driver who had a regular access to a column, you would be writing a lot more about the future of driverless vehicles, right? Because we just tend to talk about the things that we know about. And that's why there's so much more reporting about media than the public actually wants <laughs> because no one, no one likes talking about the media more than people in the media. And, um, but the writing thing for, I think where ChatGPT is going to be used a lot is among people who aren't writers, right? People who own small businesses and they need to write, um, uh, ad copy or marketing copy or, um, business letters or form letters or, um, you know, uh, contractors who don't like filling out, um, you know, uh, bids and requests for proposals kind of stuff. Um, chat GPT is going to be pretty serviceable about that. And I've, I, I've already met people who have used it for on those grounds. Um, but I agree with you at the way right end of the tail. Um, it's going to be a while before it replaces, you know, people like you or me or, um, Kevin Williamson or whoever, um, insofar as, first of all, ChatGTP doesn't come up with the idea for an article, right? That still requires somebody else that, you know, that's what the writer does before they write anything is they come up with the idea for what they want to write about. And, um, and that is more of a skill than I think people realize. Um, but at the same time, I, I think there are sort of people, the sort of in the meaty part of the bell curve or the low end of the, or the left tail of the bell curve who have to do writing, who aren't particularly good at it, who are going to be replaced to one extent or another by this technology in the next five to 10 years. Um, you're seeing some of this already happen in like with paralegal stuff. I mean, it's not quite writing, but it's the same phenomenon. And, um, um, and I don't know what it's going to do to society. Look, we, we both learned uh, from Ben Wattenberg, the eternal optimist. And I think one of the lessons we learned is that technology is changing, society is changing, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, the obviously, the, you know, the famous example, the horse and buggy whip guy, um, that was a problem for him and his business model. But these things are changing and a lot more people are, are better off because we have the creation of driverless cars, which would get, get you places faster and better and better. The, the whole of America is populated by the, the creation of, of these vehicles, and it's just a different society today because of that. So I, I'm not one of these people who stands uh, thwart technology yelling stop. Well, maybe uh, a la Buckley, I know he did yell uh, towards history in some ways in terms of uh, bad policy ideas. But so I'm pro-technology. I recognize that uh, there are a lot of examples. When you were starting mentioning the truck driver, you know, maybe that truck driver needs to write a letter for whatever reason, the legal reason, and that ChatGPT can help that person or not a truck driver or anybody. You know, I know my kids are asking me all the time how to write an email to a professor, to an administrator, to some kind of official institutional person. And you know, maybe people can use ChatGPT for that purpose. And I'm all for it. I just think that it was a launching point for me to think about what I try to do as a writer, how I try and make it work, and what lessons I could potentially impart that could be helpful to people. Because as you know, Joe, when, whenever I go someplace, I'm going to, I mentioned Jeff Jacoby earlier. When I go to Boston, I go see Jeff Jacoby and other writers and ask them about their writing approach. When I meet people in DC, I'm, I'm constantly asking writers how they approach 
not only the craft of writing, but also the purpose of writing. When you get to, when you write something, why are you doing that? Jeff Jacoby had a very interesting answer to me where he said, I'm writing for a liberal newspaper. And so I'm trying to craft arguments that the mostly liberal readership will be receptive to. And that's not necessarily how I go about it. I'm trying to impart lessons from presidential history to show how our history can inform the present. So I think different writers have different approaches. And I think that's what makes it great and interesting. So I just don't see chat GPT playing in that game at this moment. You know, I, I think that's right. Um, it's funny, like um, the most weirdly shocking thing in that piece was you attributed advice to Les Linkowski that gave me a moment of panic that maybe that's where I originally got it from, but I've been giving that advice to young people. I, I think I've brought it up several times on this podcast uh, about writing book reviews that that used to be the model um, that I, I followed. And, um, but you said that you got it from, from Les, which is fine. And just like, a, it's like, huh? Cause that's the time frame where maybe I got this from you and, it became my thing and whatever. And I, and now it's lost to the mists of history. But did you misattribute it getting it from somewhere else? No, I attributed it to myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, like, when young people ask me like, you know, for advice, I say, well, look, here's the model that I, you know, this is the advice I always give is, is do book reviews for the, for some of the reasons that you list in there, but also for some others, um, you know, forcing yourself to read a book critically um, helps you build out a sphere of expertise. It's sort of like the advice I gave you when you left the White House is like, like for young people, you know, my advice always was like, pick a book that, pick a subject that you're interested in, call it like you know, the war of eight, the Naval War of 1812 or whatever like that. You read it, you review it, blah, 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 blah. That gives you more authority to pitch your next book review about gunboat diplomacy, right? And you, you move out until you've read a couple dozen books about a specific field. And as you know, in Washington, that often makes you an expert. Um, and, uh, um, and it gives you the kind of confidence where you kind of, and the reason why I gave that advice is that where you want to get to is a place where an editor says, you know, who'd be good for this? Jonah Goldberg, or you know, who'd be good for this? Debbie Troy, because you've written so much that you've demonstrated that, you know, this stuff that, um, and that lets you just sort of, branch out even more um so so let me just say on this that for, so first of all um less definitely gave me the advice but you are often my example and you're probably too <laughs> modest to say the story but i mean you wrote a book review early on that Irving crystal read and he said whoever wrote this knows how to think and knows how to write which is one of the greatest compliments i think any human being has ever received given that it came from the great Irving i crystal. had that tattooed on so, my ass the next day i mean I, it was a big deal <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the uh, we talked about tombstone quotes. Uh, you can put that on your tombstone. So uh, in, in any event, the, so you are, I think, the prime example of someone who started writing book reviews at a, at a relatively young age, and it really helped you establish who you were. So I, I think I think it's great advice. But I know that I received it from Les. Yeah, no, that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm just worried. I, and I'm he not... had a lot of people he's mentored over the years. I wasn't saying that you misattributed it. I was worried that that maybe I originally had gotten it essentially from him once removed by you um, and then internalized it so much that I thought it was my own, but I, I honestly don't know. Um, um, so again, as someone who doesn't pitch editors on pieces very much anymore, just cause I don't have the bandwidth um, and I got to do so much stuff for the dispatch. Um, how has it changed since the, you know, the, 
late nineties, early two thousands when, um, I was certainly doing a lot of that and you were toiling in the, the, um, Bush administration. Well, email certainly helps, right? It used to be, you know, I'd have to call someone, fax them or, or send a letter. And, you know, the, the, the rapidity with which you can get responses. And, um, so I've got to give a huge shout out to James Toronto at the wall street journal editorial page, who sometimes says yes. And sometimes says no, but he says it quickly. And there are other major papers who I won't name who they sit on stuff. And it's just, it's frustrating as a writer. You want to hear, uh, you know, the, the best answer is obviously yes. The second best answer is a quick no. And the worst answer is no response. So I, I think that part of the game remains frustrating, but I think technology has made it a little easier. Um, Matthew Hennessy has this book, The Visible Hand, where he has this terrific passage about how Wall Street Journal editors think about op-ed submissions and how they make choices among competing submissions that I would urge every aspiring writer to look at if you're trying to get published in, in major papers. It really helps you think about what they are looking for when they're trying to get their piece published. And it's not necessarily the best piece by the biggest name. It's, will this piece fit our need? Does it have the right word count? Will it require minimal editing? And are we going to be embarrassed if we say no to it and appear somewhere else? I have more thoughts on that, but this is probably very inside baseball for a lot of people. Um, so, uh, getting back to the rank punditry, if you, um, I've been saying for a while now that I am still, um, betting on the field over any particular candidate. Um, in other words, I think it's more likely than someone that someone other than Donald Trump is the nominee. I think it's more likely that someone other than Ron DeSantis is the nominee, um, which someone can check my math here. Doesn't mean I am not saying that if Trump isn't the nominee, DeSantis won't be right. Um, I just think that at this stage, the unknown unknowns are so big. And in the past, everyone has been so wrong, um, so many times that, uh, it's best to have a sort of a, a certain amount of epistemological humility about this kind of stuff and just say, we can't know. Um, I mean, there's some other specific reasons why I think it, if Trump doesn't get the nomination, why he wouldn't, or DeSantis doesn't, why he wouldn't, but that's a, that's a different punditry matter. How do you see it? Do you think, um, anyone, do you think Trump or DeSantis are the odds on fair favorite and does saying that they're the odds on favorite mean they're actually likely to get it? Or does it just mean that it's just the most visible path that we have right now? I have noticed in recent weeks, smart political pundits saying Trump appears to be the likely nominee or Trump is the most likely. I mean, Carl Rove said something along those lines. Mark Halpern's been saying it and, and John Puthartz has been citing Halpern a lot. So I have noticed a little bit of that. And look, when you have somebody who has the largest percentage of votes in the early polls, that is often a good sign. And I know that uh, you and I have both said we'll take the field over Trump, or uh, you, you maybe even more um, specific in terms of any, any other candidate. Um, and I sometimes wonder how much of that is wishful thinking on both of our parts, because I don't think he is the best candidate to represent the, the Republicans, both for electoral and, and philosophical reasons going forward. So, uh, so, so I, I'm taking those smart political pundits' thoughts into advisement. I'm not yet prepared to say that he's the likely nominee, but, but I have been trying to think about what they are saying and why they are saying it. Uh, DeSantis, I think, is much more in the in epistemologically unknown 
category because in, in part because he I think he's being smart and not showing his cards too much. And he's trying to um, you know, do the less is more strategy that we talked about earlier in the podcast. And then I think there are a number of candidates. I would put uh, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo in this category who are saying, you know, there's a good chance that Trump, because he's older, because of a whole bunch of problems, just doesn't pan out this time. And if DeSantis is not what some people expect him to be, if he turns out to be a Jeb Bush or a Scott Walker, then there is a opportunity for uh, Pompeo or a or Nikki Haley or someone like that to emerge. And so that's how I'm kind of seeing it. There are, there are three likely scenarios. And I don't think this is uh, enlightening in terms of uh, giving anybody certainty about what happened. But you know, if Trump's going to walk to the nomination, he's going to walk to the nomination. There's not much you can do about that. I think there's a good chance that doesn't happen. And in that case, it seems like DeSantis, given his high poll numbers, is the most likely scenario. But if Trump falters and DeSantis is not what some people are, are propping him up to be, then you've got this opportunity for these other people to emerge. Um, all right, switching gears uh, in the very little time we have left, I just, it, I'm calling an audible on this since um, I grilled Pod about this and then I grilled Oren Kessler about this. You are sort of like my, one of my other go-to guys about Israel stuff. Um, um, at some point I got to get Noah Pollock on here and, um, and really just round out the diversity of all of this. Um, uh, the brouhaha, and I don't necessarily mean that as a dismissive thing, uh, the controversy over the, um, reforms to the Supreme Court, um, where do you come down on this? Cause it's, 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 it's sort of an interesting test to see where, um, how people think about this. Look, the Israeli Supreme Court is a problem and is something that needs to be addressed. Judge Bork wrote about this years ago. There's no real mechanism for getting new blood with different types of thinking on the court. The political process is insufficiently affects how the court changes over time. And you also have this kind of weird ability of the Supreme Court to jump in when it wants to, and there doesn't seem to be constitutional strictures for it. So it's not like the American system where we kind of have a rules-based institutional approach where we know what we're getting. So I do think there needs to be reform to the Supreme Court. That said, doing it with 61 votes is, I think, problematic to the, um, the civic culture of Israel. And I think it would behoove all of the players to see if they can find some kind of compromise approach where the Supreme Court can be changed over time by the political process. And you also have more widely understood parameters about when the Supreme Court weighs in and when it doesn't. So I don't want to see the 61 vote thing jam through, but I really do want to see reforms to the Israeli Supreme Court. Yeah, I think that's where I am. I think that's basically my position, as I think that the substantive criticisms of the Supreme Court in Israel strike me as is overwhelmingly valid. Um, and, uh, and as a, and, and as I was just talking about with, with Warren Kessler, um, I think Israel's political system, qua political. So yeah, yes, it's democratic and that's important. Right. Um, but as my colleague, Kevin Williamson has argued, it's too democratic. Um, it needs some more, Republican institutions, you know, I mean, like, would not, would it kill you to have two branches of the legislature? Uh, you know, just that kind of thing. Um, so I think that the Israeli political system itself is ill conceived because of the nature of the founding of Israel. 
Um, but it's the opposite problem that all of its critics have of Israel, which is they think it's all oh, this authoritarian, you know, uh, fascistic um, country. It's actually like if 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 you think Israel's fascistic, go listen to what um, you know the Arab delegates in the Knesset say about Israel. Um, they make Marjorie Taylor Greene seem like Na- David Niven or something. Yeah, there's a really good point on this, which is, and this is one that Giltroy keeps making, which is the people who are out there saying Israel's not a democracy, anti-democratic, this is the end of democracy. The people who are using that overblown rhetoric about Israel are only serving the purpose of Israel's enemies. And I think that people need to be careful about how they frame these things. And I, I think that's true in America too. When you lose an election, it's not the end of democracy. That said, I think trying to change it with a very narrow, very controversial majority um, in the Knesset is, is a really bad idea and, um, and will not pay the kind of political dividends that I think they think it would have. Um, and it would be much, much, much better to have some sort of Israeli Simpson Bowles kind of commission that thinks about these issues in a structural long-term way with lots of buy-in from the parties who are out of power. Um, but it doesn't seem like that's the, the way they want to do things in Israel anymore. Well, we don't know yet. Maybe they do. I mean, they have multiple readings on these bills. And I don't know any precedent for a Simpson Bowles type commission in Israel to address these things. But they're clearly feeling the heat. They're seeing a lot of tumult and the potentially economic challenges coming from this. So uh, I think the jury's still out, so to speak, on the issue of judicial reform. And uh, I hope that cooler heads prevail. And look, the um, I, I think it's the nature of politics to see the worst possibilities and to ascribe the worst motives to your enemies. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. And, and I think in Israel in particular, which is such a small country, where the people really know each other. And, um, you know, there's that thing where um, Netanyahu was criticized for um, saying hi to that member who had been in a car accident and uh, who's, who's been a critic. That's what you do in a small country when you, you know each other. I mean, you're seen as you're within the same family. And I'm, I hope they can work this out in the way a family does. Sometimes it's noisy. But. All right. Uh, just very quick pop culture lightning round. Are you watching anything worth watching? I know. I, I watched that show, The Consultant. And I have to say, I was very disappointed with it. It's one of those shows where, you know, it's with, um, what's the name of the guy? The Austrian actor. Russell Crowe? From, um, oh. from Inglorious Bastards. And Christopher Wal- Christoph Waltz. Anyway, um, it's one of the shows that sets up a mystery in an interesting way, and they never really resolve it. So I remain open to any suggestions. Uh, the Last of Us, I think, is heading rapidly towards uh, being a disappointment. Great opening few episodes, um, but it seems to be languishing a little bit. Um, any movies that you see? Oh, Tev, this is so sad. So listeners should know, like originally you were like Mr. Pop Culture Guy. Like we would have, you know, I mean, like we watched everything. We grew up watching the odd couple. You're like the third leg of the stool of you, me, and Pod in terms of like odd couple stuff, not counting my friends from high school, um, of odd couple trivia and whatnot. And um, um, this is very sad. So so I do have a movie recommendation. Uh, uh-huh. It came out a few months ago. It was called Vengeance with BJ Novak. Oh, I heard about that. I never saw it. I wanted to see that. Where he is a New Yorker writer who goes down to Texas to solve a mystery. And um, he brings a lot of the kind of pretentiousness and condescension that a New Yorker, a liberal New Yorker writer might have towards Texas. And to be fair, they call him on it, even as they also mock some of the uh, 
the Texas ways. Uh, but my favorite thing is that whenever someone introduces him as a writer for New York magazine, he goes, um, the New Yorker. <laughs> and it happens enough that it is, it is quite amusing. So yeah, I, w- I would recommend that movie. So yeah, I, I do watch movies regularly. It's just there's so much um, stuff that I find unpleasant that it's, it's not that I'm not watching movies. It's that I'm just finding good, hard to find good ones to recommend. So for example, I was really excited about that movie, You People, which has a great cast with uh, Eddie Murphy and Julie Louise Dreyfus and Jonah Hill. And it was utterly, utterly disappointing. And it, I felt like everybody I knew watched it that first weekend it opened on Netflix and everybody felt the same way. It just didn't work. Hmm. So I've, I haven't seen it. Um, I, have, I just have a, an aversion towards um, anything that is intended to teach me a lesson or it feels like it's trying to teach me a lesson. And it doesn't mean I won't watch it, but I will wait. I will wait to hear whether it's worth my discomfort to power through it um you know if it, if it's actually well done um uh you should watch you should give mayor uh mayor of kingstown a shot when you get a chance um it's a uh, it's not high art but uh um the tevi of your tevi i grew up with um uh would like it um and uh it's with jeremy renner um on Paramount Plus. I have not started the new Picard yet because I hated the second season so much um, that I set fire to some small villages in protest. Um, but uh, I, eventually I'll have to because I am a Star Trek completist. Um, um, but uh, anyway, we're now, I'm just, I'm just flannel mouthing. So, um, um, Tevi Troy, uh, presidential historian, um, policy wonk extraordinaire, veteran of, of campaigns and White Houses. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, Tevi has left, and uh, one of the first things he asked me after uh, we, we stopped recording was, are you okay? Um, because he thought I was sort of out of it, and I told him that's because I'm kind of out of it. I just had a really, really terrible night's sleep last night and had to get up early to do NPR, um, so my brain's just not really functioning and um sometimes there's the kind of tired that you are that caffeine doesn't help it actually fogs you up more so one of the first things i'm going to do after i'm done here is um go back to sleep for 20 minutes or so um which is like really my only superpower is 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 i can almost sleep on command um sometimes i don't want to jinx it but i'm really good at napping um um but some house cleaning stuff First of all, we are uh, in the next week or so, I'm not sure the exact date, but uh, very shortly, we are going to be uh, switching podcast platforms to Spotify. We're very excited about it. Um, We know that uh, some people with some podcast apps um, have had issues with skipping or um, repeats of audio and that kind of thing. We believe, hope, pray, have a high level of confidence that this will solve most, if not all of those. Um, it will also let us do some other things on the back end, on the business end that we're very excited about. Um, but you should be aware, as what always happens with these things, that the transition period may confuse people, may confuse um, your apps. Um, we just don't know what we don't know. But generally, when you switch platforms of any kind um, on the internet, you get unforeseen problems i think the the real cure is to, is to have as many apps as po- many podcast apps as possible 
and download the remnant on all of them. Um, not that I care about download numbers, but just, you know, just in case. And of course, I'm kidding. I just, you know, I don't want you to juke the stats or anything like that. But I should also say, you know, just because we're moving to Spotify doesn't mean we're like going Joe Rogan on you. Um, it'll still be available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you know, we're going to explore more in the in the in the months and years ahead, more paywalled podcast content. Um, but uh, that's not what we're doing with Remnant. That's not what we're doing with the Dispatch podcast. Um, we're just uh, getting a better deal. Um, that uh, suits our needs more and hopefully suits your needs more too as well. Um, I also just want to give another plug before the deadline for the AI summer honors um, program. You can just find out about it by Googling AI summer honors um, or go to AI.org and poke around there. It's for college students. It's a great gig. Um, you'll learn a lot. Um, you'll have exposure to some of the smartest and best folks out there um you might even see me on the roof smoking a cigar and also um i don't know i don't think this necessarily qualifies as making news um but it's news to um you folks is that clarence thomas is going to teach a course with john Yu for the summer honors program which is pretty awesome uh so there's still a little time the deadline is march 15th i don't think they're going to move it again um, it can be pretty competitive, but it's just a great deal. You, it's all expenses paid, I believe. Um, and, uh, highly, highly recommend it, um, for, for the college students out there or for the parents and relatives of college students that want to sort of nudge, nudge them in the right direction, um, in every sense of the word. So, uh, with that, thanks again for listening. Um, I'm not sure how, what the schedule is going to be with the second podcast, because again, I'm getting on a plane in the morning. Um, but we'll, and then I'm getting on a plane Wednesday morning to come back. So it's all very con convoluted. Um, but, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to Tevi. Um, I promise I will be better rested the next time we talk and, um, and thanks to all of you. And with that, I'll see you next time. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.